Uh, we've had a number of these kind of reports as we're in this series called Summer Good Reads and Good Summer Reads. And uh, I uh, want to encourage you to read some of the scripture. Next week we're looking at 2 Samuel 13. And I, I want to give a word of caution uh, because in this... Got a noise going on here? Yeah. Is it not working? Okay. We'll use this instead. Is that better? Can people hear? Okay. We're in a series, Good Summer Reads, and I want to share with you, we're looking at next week at the story of Tamar, and that's a story that can be very difficult um, to hear and to listen, so I wanted to kind of give you this warning ahead of time if you yourself have had um, any kind of experience, because this story is of, of, of sexual violation, and it's in Scripture, but it's an important story because there are important lessons from it. But I wanted to share this with you um, ahead of time so that you can be aware of that if you have yourself or someone else you know you love or a friend has experienced something like this. This could be a difficult story. But it is worth telling in our culture and our age, and the Bible records it. Second Samuel 13, I invite you to be um, a part of that next week, whether you're here or online, to hear that story. I want to get back to the question that was asked for this story, because we've looked at Esther, we've looked at Malachi, we've looked at the fallen angels this week, we're going to look at Abraham. And, and the question was, how many sons did Abraham have? This is not a quick, uh, any kind of a trick question, okay? This is a question about the actual sons, not, you know, generations down the line. So, this is what we had on the, I gotta look at this one, 52 said 2, 8 said 8, 30 said 12. The answer is actually he had 8 sons. And people don't realize that. But I'm going to get ahead of the story if I tell you too much about it. It's just that after Sarah died, when Abraham was 138 years of age, he took another wife named Keturah and had 6 sons. And most of us don't go beyond the story of Isaac. But Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go ahead and let me share with you the story. Because this morning I want to tell you the story of a person, this man who is known throughout history, throughout the church, as the father of faith. And I want to share with you the story which could easily be called the story of double-minded fickleness. Because if you read through this story and as we go through this story, you'll see that Abraham was the father of faith, but he was often in those places of doubt and not stepping into trust. And so to understand the story, you have to understand Abraham. Abraham desperately wanted a son because his deepest heart desire was to become the head of a great nation, the ancestor of many nations. And it would be somewhat like today if someone was um, in their heart, their desire was to be the CEO of, of Amazon or, or Target. I, I don't know how else, to, you know, that's kind of, it was in his heart, that was his desire. Philosopher Eleanor Stump, in a book called Wandering in the Wilderness, and remember, she's a philosopher, it's pretty deep and dense, but there's a section in there on, on some stories in the Bible that she just gets into, and it is really good. She says, the same way someone might set their heart on free climbing the impassable Don Wall of El Capitan, and, and that's a picture of that. And, and the next picture shows you 
how stupid that might be. (laughs) But in that same way that you may have that kind of desire, she writes, Abraham fixated on the prospect of patriarchy. His story begins and ends with children. Those his wife cannot bear and those who in the end come to bury him. In their 40 years of intimacy, God speaks to Abraham eight times. Every conversation centers on Abraham's children and descendants. And in his heart of hearts, Abraham wants nothing more than to be the father of children, the patriarch of a clan, the ancestor of a people. So chapter one, as I tell this story, it's a story of what I call Abraham and Lot. It kind of begins there. And it's the very first conversation that God has with Abraham. And he, he comes to Abraham and he gives him both a command and a promise. He says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. Now, the promise, when you look at this, is rather general and a bit vague. He says, I'll bless your obedience by making you a patriarch of a great nation. Go to the land. I'll show you where it is. God doesn't say when this will happen. He doesn't say how he will become the father of a great nation or or where this will take place. But he does say this, that when it happens, God will do it. When it happens, God will do it. And so the command, as you look at the command, is quite simple. Just leave the country you're in, your people, your father's household, and follow me, trust me, and I will guide you to the place that I want you to be, to that land. Genesis 12.4 says, so Abraham left. One of my favorite historians, his name is Thomas Cahill, In a series of books he calls The Hinge of Histories, he talks about Israel and the nation of Israel, and he talks about this being one of the hinges. He says, the single response of Abraham, just two words in Hebrew, is the hinge of Scripture. If Abraham stayed home, the story would have ended there. So Abraham, the father of faith, he went, he left, he listened, he obeyed. Except for one tiny detail. Genesis 12.4, we read this, so Abraham left. And it says, as the Lord had told him, except he took a lot with him. The command was to leave his father's household. Lot was a part of his father's household. Again, Professor Eleanor Stump points out that this marks the beginning of a prominent theme in Abraham's story, his double-mindedness. He trusts God enough to leave home, but struggles to believe God's promise will literally be fulfilled. So here's Abraham, he's 75, Sarah's 65. They're without children. They've left. My friend John Ortberg says they're at this age without children, and he makes this comment. He says, they're both on Medicare, which does not cover Viagra. So he brings his nephew Lot along as a kind of plan B. Maybe God needs some help. Abraham leaves his country and his homeland. He bets the farm on God, but he hedges his bet. Maybe if God doesn't have for him lots of children, he can have lots of children. 
Because maybe Lot's children will fulfill his promise. Let's go, come on. In other words, from the very beginning, think about it. The, 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 the one we have called the father of faith in the story from the very beginning reveals the story of a person who is both double-minded and fickle. He has enough faith to leave, but he does not have enough faith to wait. And just in case Abraham decides to help God out, he waits a few years, again, there's no baby. So he'll help God fulfill the promise, and he comes up with a backup plan. Anybody, Anybody familiar with that in your own life? What's amazing is God makes no comment on this. It's not found in scripture about what Abraham's doing. You just have this picture of God deciding to work with this double-minded, fickle person anyway. And you have a number of stories in here that I'm not going to get into. Um, As you go on from chapter 12, a little bit later, uh, there's a drought and Abraham goes and there's a king and he goes in. The king thinks this this, this lady he has with him, Sarah, is really cute. And he says, she's my half-sister. And again, he's just kind of a fickle, and I don't really trust you, God. And that happens twice. Another time later in scripture, we won't get into that. But here's what I want you to know. Chapter 1 ends with both... Abraham and Sarah and Lot coming into the land. They come into the land, and after a period of time, the land can't support them both. So Lot takes off east, moves away from Abraham, and really, plan B is off the shelf. Lot's now in this situation trying to figure out what he's going to do. So you go to chapter 2, which is what I call the story of Abraham and Eleazar. And so, as Genesis 15, 1 begins, there's another conversation that God has with Abraham. It begins with these words, Some time later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abraham, for I will protect you, and your servant will be great. And your reward will be great, and your reward will be great. He basically has this assurance to Abraham, hey, I'm going to fulfill the promise. And Abraham says, I I get it, good idea, God, but I don't know if you've noticed I have no children yet. We're both, Sarah and I, are getting older. And I like the idea of the land. This is really nice. I like all the cattle that you've been able to prosper with. I like the wealth. I like all the things you're doing. But we don't have someone to inherit it all. And he said, so God, I, I have an idea. I actually wrote a will. And, and I thought, since Lot's gone, plan B's out, plan C sounds good. And that is, I'm going to make... My chief servant, Eleazar, the inheritor of all this. Yeah, that sounds pretty convincing until God says no. Not going to happen. Plan C is denied by God. So Abraham has to scrap another well-reasoned plan. He's the father of faith, and it seems like he's having a bad day, a bad stretch of time, maybe a bad season of years, right? Nothing's happening. He's having a hard time believing. So chapter 2 ends with God making it really clear that it's not your nephew, nor is it your chief servant who will inherit and be the fulfiller of this promise. And so God comes to him one more time to clarify this. and, 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 And obviously Abraham's pretty nervous about this being fulfilled. God seems to be just fine, content, not not phased one bit. And he comes to him and he says, Abraham, have faith. Don't give way to fear. 
I will make you a patriarch, and here's the new clarification, and will give you a son from your own body. Now, what I want you to do is look at the sky. So Abraham looks at the sky. He says, I want you to see all the stars. Count them. So Abraham begins to count them. He's going on and he's counting. He's going one million one, one million two, one million three, one million four. And he just says, God, this is endless. And he goes, that's exactly what I want you to understand. You will have descendants more than you can count. And it will come from your own body. And so Abraham believes, it's said in this passage of scripture in 15, it's credited to him as righteousness. Not because he's so faithful, but he chooses to commit and trust God with his life, his heart, his dreams, his deepest desires. And Abraham offers a sacrifice. It's a kind of a contract. They sign it. It's a treaty. They kind of like kids, you know, you kind of cut your finger and put blood, you know, how you do that. That's what they're doing with one another in a deep way, making this commitment. It seems all good. It seems that God's patience has gotten Abraham back on track until Abraham, a few years later, goes off the rails. Abraham believes for a while. Ever had that experience? So chapter 3. It's the story of Abraham and Ishmael. So we go from Lot to Eliezer, now we go to Ishmael. Chapter 3 begins with a conversation, this time with Abraham to Sarah, Abraham explaining to Sarah the conversation he had had with God. And he wants to make it really clear to Sarah. He says that God told me that I'd have all kinds of descendants and there'd be as many as the stars in the sky. And he made it really clear to me that it would be my son, it would, it would come from my body. And so they get renewed in vigor and they try and they wait and they try and they wait and they try and wait. And Abraham's not too in favor of all the waiting, but he doesn't mind the trying. Um, Sarah, not so much. She's tired of the waiting. She wants a child. So finally, Sarah says to Abraham, it's obvious. The Lord's kept me from having children. He said that it would come from you. And it's not coming for me. So take my handmaid, Hagar, and go and sleep with her and have a child, as God promised. So Hagar conceives, Ishmael's born, there's an heir. It looks like this is it. It's from Abraham's own body. Until you begin to realize, this again, God makes clear, isn't his plan. And the family is, after a while, being torn apart. Ishmael is the father of many Arab nations. Isaac, who comes later, is the father of Israel. The kids are fighting, and they're fighting to this day. It's one of those kind of things like when you try and help God out, sometimes you make things worse. There's a book that's been out called When Helping Hurts. It would have been good for Abraham to have read that book. But chapter 3 ends with... Plan D, so he's gone through P, C, plan D is now a major disaster. And it ends with lots of heartache. And our father of faith has fathered a child out of double-minded fickleness. Genesis 16, 16 says, Abraham at this point was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now I move to chapter 4, and chapter 4 in this story of Abraham is really the story of the long wait for Isaac. 
chapter 17, verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is now 13 years after Ishmael has been born. 13 years of silence. He's one year shy of 100 years of age, and Sarah is a year shy of 90. And he's at this point that it must be Ishmael. Romans chapter 4, verse 19, Paul has a comment on this, and his comment is this. Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Ain't going to happen any longer. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was as good as dead. And once again, he has a conversation with God. God clarifies his promise to Abraham. He says to him very clearly as he begins to take out some of the ambiguity. He says, it's not your nephew. It's not your chief servant. It is not even your son through Hagar. And then he goes on to say what it is, verse 15 through 16 of chapter 17. He says, regarding Sarah, your wife, from now on her name will be Sarah, and I will bless her and give you a son from her. So he knows now it's from his body, and it's from her body. It's clarified one more time. She'll become the mother, he says, of many nations. King of nations will be among her descendants. And in hearing this, that Sarah will become pregnant at the age that she is at, that she'll be the mother of nations, of many nations. He um, bows to the ground to the Lord, and he begins to laugh to himself, and he mumbles. You maybe haven't noticed God, but Sarah's about 90 years old, and he's laughing. And so it's the first bit of maybe impatience that God shows with Abraham, because he reiterates it. He says in in verse 19, Abraham, Sarah, your wife, will give you birth to a son for you, and you will name him Isaac. And God makes it clear. Abraham, when I make a promise, I never, I never, ever break it. And when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. You and Sarah will have a child And from this child will come many other children. And you will be a patriarch, as I had promised, which is the deepest desires of your heart, of many nations. So in Genesis 18, it goes on, the Bible tells the story that the, the, the Lord appeared to Abraham. He appears to three messengers who are, who are these, um, angels in disguise, so to speak, although Abraham knows these people that are coming are important. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and he saw them. And Abraham invites them in, does good hospitality. He serves them curds, milk, and steak. Says he goes and makes a sacrifice. I don't know what curds, maybe it's cottage cheese and milk. I don't know. But they come and they say, we have a message. And this message is from God to you, Abraham. He says, Abraham... God wants you to know that next year, so now he clarifies it a little bit more, next year, Sarah will have a child, and you will have a son, and you will be a patriarch of many nations. Well, what's going on now at this point is Sarah saw that. She sees these guys in the tent, and she's listening. And it says that she's listening, and she hears this message. She starts to laugh. 
And there's a little aside in the story a little bit later because they have a conversation together and, and, and Abraham says to her, Sarah, why did you laugh? And she says, I, I didn't laugh. He says, no, God told me you laughed. And so they're both laughing. Well, about a year passes and Sarah gives birth. It says in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And and Abraham and Sarah named the baby Isaac, which means laughter. It it means all kinds of laughing is going around because they cannot believe that this impossible situation that they had been told that God would do it, and he does it. And it can't cause anything but to laugh. This is amazing that God would come through and do this. And so, in this chapter of Abraham's life, as we look at this chapter of the long wait for Isaac, God removes the ambiguity of his original promise. Abraham has a son by Sarah. It comes in that year he said it was. God said he would do it, and God does. Now chapter 4 ends with Abraham willing to offer up Isaac to God, which is a whole other story we won't get into. It's the summit or what we would call the peak of his faith. It's why I believe he's called the father of faith. It's why he's called the father of faith in spite of all his double-minded fickleness. Now I have to share with you, I have nothing on Abraham when it comes to being fickle. Okay? I know about fickleness, and even more so, my wife. This is going to be embarrassing for me, but I just want to say I can relate, and I'm guessing you may too. I remember when Grace and I were getting married in that whole phase. We knew each other for six years. We would we would minister in places together. We would ride together, and we would pray for one another to find the right person. Well, finally, I'm, my eyes open and I realize I have this really right, good person right beside me as we're driving to a place of ministry. It becomes clear. And so I begin to talk to Grace. We begin to kind of not maybe uh, date, but are, are in this place of talking through this. And, and then we, I think we had a date or two. And we had known each other so well. And I would be talking to Grace about how I love her and about what's about getting married. And we'd talk about that. And then I would say, you know, when we get married. And then like two days later, I would go, if we get married. I say that because I go, I know what it means to be fickle. And more so to you. I'm so grateful for my wife. Because we call her in our family G-Rock. She is kind of so solid and, and sturdy, and she's there, and she's present, and she's faithful. And I know of a God because of someone who shows me that kind of faithfulness, who is also faithful. I don't know if you're fickle. I know what hedging bets is like. I trust God with my money, except when I hold some back or don't want to hear about another hungry child. Or I'm convinced that this vacation toy possession is my entitled right. 
I trust God with my mouth, except when I'm really angry at being slighted or truly believe it's, it's my responsibility to put that person in their place. Or believe that the only way to save my good name is to white lie or exaggerate or maybe even just deny the truth completely. I don't know if you relate to any of these things. I trust God with my relationships, except when it looks like I'll get hurt or I won't get what I think I need or I fear the fact that I'll be alone and abandoned. I trust God with his promises until I need to step in and take over because God just doesn't seem to be coming through and the wait has been too long and it looks impossible. I trust God, but I'm pretty quick to turn to plan B and C and D to take Lot with me, to look for an Eliezer, to produce an Ishmael. I hedge my bets while I say I believe God. Now, this story raises all kinds of questions like, how much faith does a person need to have before God, you know, before God, before he DQs them, right? How much does God need my help to fulfill his promises for the deep desires he's placed in my heart? How long am I willing to wait when it looks impossible for God to do what he promised he said he would do? These questions bring us to the final chapter of Abraham's story. Because most of the people believe his story ends there with Isaac and Ishmael and it's all over there. You know, Abraham believes, we come now to the story that I kind of started it with. The story of uh, the final chapter of Abraham's six sons. Because Abraham believes he puts all his eggs in God's basket except when he doesn't. Most people believe Abraham's story ends here, but Sarah dies at age 127. In Genesis chapter 23 through, uh, in verse 1, we're told of her death. And we're told in Genesis chapter 24 verse 1 that Abraham was now old and well advanced in years and the Lord blessed him in every way. That's what it says, in every way, except for maybe one. You see, at this point, Isaac is still single. And he has no wife, which means he has no children, no father of many nations, no countless descendants. And so he has to do something. He gets Isaac married. He sends him away. Isaac finds someone from his family up in Haran. He comes back with a beautiful wife named Rebecca. But there's just one problem. As the story continues, Rebecca is barren, which means again... The promise of God to Abraham about many sons through Sarah remains barren. And so Abraham, the father of a faith, except when he isn't, hedges his bets again. Genesis 25, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Abraham married another wife whose name was Keturah. And she gave birth to Zimran and Joshkan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. And you have to say, why? Could it be that Abraham is beginning to, can you sense another plan coming on here? He seems to be working plan E at 138 years of age. He's once again helping God out. And amazing, remember, I'm telling you the story of the one who throughout history has been known as the father of faith. It seems that just 
in this case, God maybe hasn't noticed that Isaac hasn't come through. And so he will present to God not only plan B, but plan C, D, E, and even F, G, and H if necessary. He's still hedging his bets. I love what John Ortberg says here. He says he puts his eggs in God's basket, but it strikes him that Keturah's eggs might just come in handy. And he believes, but he doubts. He trusts, but he doesn't. The father of faith is also the father of fickleness. And did you know that in spite of all this fickleness, there is still someone who remains completely loyal and faithful throughout? No matter how many times he moves to a place of fickleness, he also then comes back to God. And he puts his faith back in God. In fact, if you just read the very end of the story, people don't realize what happens here, but it says um, Abraham dies in, in this story in, in faith. Genesis 25, 5 says that Abraham left everything to his son Isaac. He put all his faith in Isaac being the one. It says also in 25.5, it records that Abraham sends his final six sons away, this is quote, from his son Isaac to the land of the east, just to make sure that Isaac would be the uncontested heir of God's promises. He does all this and then Abraham dies. In faith that God will come through and there will be a line and many, many will follow. I don't know if you're like what I described in my own fickleness. I don't know, and maybe in some area in your life when it comes to um, really believing and trusting God. But I can tell you this from this story. No matter how many times you fail and fall, no matter, no matter how feeble and fickle you are, as you place your faith in God, you are placing your faith in a God who is faithful always. And we look at these examples and these stories in history and we see people who put their faith and trust in God and yet we see something far greater. We see a God who is more than faithful. And I just want to share with you because when I read through the story, it left me with some ideas and thoughts. Because when you think about it, God could have preempted all of this and been very clear with Abraham. He could have clearly said, that you will have a son, you'll be a hundred years old, it will come through Sarah. He could have, from the very beginning, he could have made that really clear. You ever wonder, you kind of think, why didn't God do that? Why did he keep it kind of vague? Why did he clarify it as he went? Why doesn't he spell it out? Because God, God is aiming for something far more glorious than just a rule follower. God wants a friend. God wants a great soul that will trust him in the midst of the ambiguity, that will trust him even though it's vague, who that when they walk, they walk with just enough light that as they walk, God reveals more, even though you stumble and fall. Even though you may be fickle and you find yourself today, this morning, saying, I just don't have the faith. I'm not an Abraham. Yes, you are. Because he is just like you. And you have a God 
who is more concerned with you following a bunch of rules. You have a God who wants a person of deep character who has developed a friendship with him that knows him, trusts him, walks with him, and through life begins to develop that trust in him like Abraham did that will follow him anywhere. Now I just have to ask you, in your heart, If you really want your desires fulfilled, this story tells us only one person can do it. God. If you follow him. And I just want to ask you, if you are at that place where you're kind of going, you know what, I am fickle and and I fail. And in fact, I have failed again. I just ask you again. Because this might be your conversation through the Holy Spirit with you in your heart before God saying, have faith in me, God says. Put your trust in me. I am making you into a person who will become faithful just as I am. I'm going to ask you to pray and we're going to go into a time of communion. And take communion together as a church family. Father, as we come into your presence, we want to recognize just how incredibly faithful you are. When it comes to one of the greatest questions of all, and that is, who you are to us, you make that so clear. You make it clear by sending Jesus and by this incredible sacrifice he has made. And in this sacrifice, we see your heart and your character. That no matter how far we may feel from you, no matter how far we have walked from you, no matter how we have strayed, You come after us and love us. You give your life for us because you are faithful. So God, I am going to ask that you would take right now and I'm going to ask you as you're in this prayer with me, would you turn your eyes on God for he is the one who is faithful. Great is his faithfulness, not yours. He only asks that you look to him. He only asks that you follow and trust And you follow in trust again. So that he begins to fill you with a growing faith. Father, we thank you for this meal that we celebrate. You have told us that you did this for us. That we would remember that there would be nothing that would be able to prove more fully your love for us than your coming and giving your life for us. And we give you thanks for that. Thank you for the way you, Jesus, walked so faithfully and followed your Father. And thank you that that life is ours in you.
ask if you'd take your communion cups if you didn't get one they're in the back if you didn't get one you came in if you are online we invite you just to be a part of this in any way that it might work for you grab some bread some juice for we're told that Jesus on the night he was betrayed that he gave to his disciples bread and they broke it together and he said this is my body which has been broken for you because of my deep love for you and your faith in me as you trust me I will take the pain and the punishment that would be yours and it's placed on the cross and so I invite you says Jesus to take this as a recognition of my deep, deep love for you. Let us eat this together. in the same way this cup represents his blood which is the life that poured out of his body and in your looking to him in faith in him pours into your body all of his grace and goodness and his life and so as he passed the bread he also passed the cup and said this cup he gives as well to you. Let us drink it together. Father, we um, want to just take a moment as we've heard this story and focus our eyes on you. For great is your faithfulness.